Please join me with today's scripture reading found in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be. It's good to be with you this morning. The microphone works. I'm thrilled. Uh, so, uh, a cleaner start uh, this Sunday. Uh, it's the season of Epiphany. Uh, historically, the church has celebrated the time just after Christmas season where we revel in the wonder of God becoming man. Then we do the math on the crazy beautiful things that happens as Jesus comes into our world. It's just so good that we can't stop with Christmas. We've got to continue to consider and remind ourselves from the stories of the Gospels of the wonder and beauty and power of Jesus for us. In the opening uh, meditation, the last line says this, with great hope from one of the early church fathers in the 300s. Now it is no longer dust you are and to dust you shall return but you're joined to heaven and in, into heaven you shall be taken up we're celebrating in this season before lent the wonder and beauty and power of christ and the difference that he makes as he comes into our world uh, we're doing it in the gospel of luke uh, luke was a physician he was a close associate with the apostle paul uh, he was able to interact with eyewitnesses and other apostles to, with a very well-researched approach to lay out in an orderly way the things that happened that were verified uh, by eyewitnesses some 25-ish years after these events actually took place. He wrote it to a man named Theophilus. Now, it's popular sometimes in church settings for us to name our children biblical names. Any kids here have a biblical name? Some of us around here. Anybody named Theophilus? Uh, you should be glad, uh, because some have said, get ready for Bible humor, uh, dad humor. It's the awfulest name you could possibly hear. Uh -uh. But it's actually one of the most beautiful names, even though it sounds so awful. Because it means theos, God, Thileo, uh, a lover of God. Probably what happened with Theophilus is he had become persuaded and probably he had means to enable Luke to do the research to provide an account for him. This is probably his baptized name. It's the name that he became when he encountered the power and story of Jesus. So as we step into Luke's gospel, we're longing for the same. That the power and beauty and wonder of who Jesus is would so step in and connect to the dots with the experiences that we walk through in our lives that we too would become friends of God and lovers of God, uh, that he would move in us in a way that would begin to affect uh, how we live and how we move in this world. So we're going to explore a little bit more this morning uh, the crazy, beautiful truths about Jesus that Luke portrays for us. It's in three ways in this short scene. We see uh, how Jesus feels towards us, what Jesus does for us, 
and who is Jesus? Uh, how does he feel towards us? What does he do for us? And who is he, this one who is doing and feeling for us? Uh, we left off last week, if you were here. If not, I'm uh, filling you in uh, with a story that comes right off the heels of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and Luke's account of it. And right afterwards, he goes back to the Sea of Galilee kind of area, Capernaum, which was often a home base, and he encounters not a follower of, in Israel, but a God-fearer, a Gentile, a centurion who gets the kind of authority that Jesus is demonstrating with great power. And so he begins to send the word about a servant of his who's deeply, deeply cherished uh, by him. Uh, by the centurion, he says, you don't even need to come. Just speak the word. And I know that because of your authority, he can be healed. And Jesus is stunned at his faith. And he begins to brag on him and sing with joy over him. He says, I've not seen faith like this even in all of Israel. And so with this powerful display of Jesus, we start seeing he's not just for insiders. He, he's for all whom God gifts with faith. Uh, with that event in mind, and probably lots of people wanting to follow, to stick around to see what more Jesus might do, they travel a day's journey and come to a city uh, relatively close to Jesus' hometown, Nazareth. It's the city of Nain. It's taken them about 25-mile journey, perhaps a day, maybe a little bit more, of followers who are wanting continue to listen to Jesus and see what Jesus does. And as they approached the gate of the city, the gate was the entry point, and it was also like the downtown center of the city. It's where everybody came uh, to do business and to meet in the city. And with the great crowd that's following Jesus, they encounter another crowd. Uh, the crowd with Jesus is wondering and filled with joy, maybe a little tired from a day-long 25-mile hike, uh, but they encounter a group of people who are not experiencing joy. They are mourning the loss of a son. He is an only son of a widow. And all of a sudden their joy melts into the sorrow of who they encounter. And as the two crowds come together, Jesus leading the one, the woman at the front of the funeral procession for the other, Jesus sees this woman. He does the math on what's happening here. Somehow he knows uh, of her sorrow, and he knows because it would have been common in the culture of the day that she is going to be destitute without her son at her side to be able to provide for her because of the simple economy and lack of opportunities for women in that day. And Jesus, encountering the sorrow feels deeply in his gut. The same despair, the same I feel forgotten by God that this woman does. He feels so deeply. Surely there could not have been his eyes without tears. He sees her. And he has compassion on her. Ten years ago, I began counseling as I went on a sabbatical. 
Uh, I was a year overdue, year eight, <laughs> in a hard-charging season in the church that I led. Uh, towards the end, towards the nearing of my sabbatical, I shared a story about when I was 13. It was kind of a wounding story in my life. And my, one of my assistant pastors, who was so perceptive, much better pastoral sense than I had, he said, Gary, can I tell you something? I said, yeah, as we would evaluate the sermons each week. He says, when you told that story, I felt like you were still there. He said, it was almost like you felt 13 again. I knew he was right. And I knew I really hadn't explored that at the depth that I needed to. I got connected to a counselor in Birmingham. I was at Chattanooga at the time. This guy was so gospel rich that I just, it was worth the drive for me at that time. And as I recounted that story and as I recounted the current hardship that I was in, I experienced something I'd never experienced from anyone before. Tears began to fill his eyes. He began to weep with me over 13. And the horror of the hardship that I was walking through then. Have you ever had anybody do that with you? Someone who felt so deeply what you feel that tears came out of a gut-wrenching experience that they're entering into with you and you have this sense for just a moment i'm not completely crazy this is unbelievably hard and heart-wrenching and it's worthy of tears that's the kind of movement in jesus heart that's how he's moving towards this widow he feels a depth of compassion for her he's feeling the very same things that she's feeling on the inside he's moved to tears and he actually says do not weep, not because he's trying to shut her down emotionally, but because about what he's about to do with her powerfully. And some, some of you know, a year ago today, uh, after hearing from the doctor that my wife was actively dying, uh, we moved her home to hospice. And the next day, which will be tomorrow, will be the first anniversary. Uh, there, as the morning went on, she began to labor in her breathing. And it got slower and slower and slower. Some of you have been here. And when she breathed her last, I could barely breathe. And I felt so forgotten by God. I felt despair. I'd felt it once before with my mother 25 years prior. But the air went out of me. And all I could think of, I feel so alone, but everything I believe better be true. Now, I haven't been here long. Uh, less than two weeks, <laughs> but I've been with you enough to know I'm not the only one grieving here. Some of you have lost people who are dear. Some of you experienced death in a relationship. 
Some of you lost babies. At the moment of greatest joy, terrific sorrow. Some of you have been violated in the past in such traumatic ways that you can't help but feel filthy and dirty, sometimes deserving of death. And some of us, sometimes the same people, have such destructive behaviors in our lives, they feel like death. I just want, wherever you are, I want you to know Jesus sees you. Jesus feels for you. Do you realize that Jesus, though he is in heaven, has a physical glorified body? You know what that means? He still feels deeply for you at the right hand of the Father. He's not just a spirit. He feels everything that you feel with a depth of compassion. He sees and he is not disgusted. He moves towards and longs to do to, for you to experience his compassion and his power. What does he do for us? Look at verse 14. Then he came up and touched the beer. Beer means a coffin. He wasn't supposed to do that. <laughs> if you know Old Testament laws, you did not touch dead people or anything that held a dead person or that had been associated with them. He, he's bursting through the Old Testament law, showing he's not bound to the clean laws. He's going to do a work that surpasses it. He touches the beer. Uh, everyone would have been silent. And it says, the bearer stood still. No wonder. He's doing a culturally offensive, inappropriate kind of thing. But look what follows. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise whoa and verse 15 and the dead man sat up dead men don't sit up <laughs> i've never been to a funeral like this i wish i had been to one but i've not been to a funeral like that but he sat up and, and listen how tender and jesus gave her only son he restored him to his mother whoa. what does jesus do for us he does a resurrection he commands a resurrection in our lives. Now, if you're like me and more than a little bit cynical sometime, this is what I think. He didn't do that for me. He could have done that a year ago, but he did not do that for me. For those of us so deep in our grief that we can't find our way forward, uh, for those of us that have grown cynical for the ways that God has not come through in our lives, let's think about the implications of the resurrection, okay? Um, years ago, I was in a graduate seminar with two pillars, uh, church fathers of the time, Tim Keller and Edmund Clowney. And uh, Tim Keller s said, what you've got to do in any passage to understand it well is you've got to pull the redemptive thread. He went just like this, and I've never forgotten, and I'll use it over and over for you again, too. <laughs> you've got to pull the redemptive thread of what's here to see how it connects to what's gone, how it goes in the Old Testament and how it goes forward. You see, the listeners at that time would have been well acquainted with the story of another widow, another widow who lived in Elijah's day. Elijah was like the greatest prophet in Israel's history, and partly because of the event that Jesus is 
pulling a signature move of Elijah on. Uh, Elijah was uh, prophesied at a time where the wickedest king in Israel named Ahab reigned. And for God to show his judgment and woo his people back to himself, uh, through Elijah, God pronounced a famine that would last for three years. And the first phase of God's provision for Elijah in the midst of his famine was to go into wilderness and have a bird bring him bread in the morning and the evening uh, and, and meat in the evening. And he provided a brook for him. Interesting, Elijah's embodying the Israel story and God's provision for him. But the famine goes on for so long that the brook dries up. And then God makes another command for Elijah to be provided for by a widow. Not a Jewish widow, but into Gentile territory. A widow who seemed completely undeserving. Elijah goes into her city uh, and finds her at the city gate, just like here. Uh, she's not with her dead son. Uh, she is gathering sticks to prepare a last meal for her and her son. She said, we will celebrate it, and then we will die. Elijah has the audacity to ask her if she would go provide him some bread and something to drink. She gets him something to drink, but then she breaks honest with him on the bread. He says, we have hardly anything left except for me and my son. I'm gathering these sticks for us to have our last meal, and then we will die. And Elijah prom promises to her if she would provide for him a drink and the bread that God would allow the flour, the, 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 the container of the flour would never go empty, and the jar of cooking oil would not as well. And so they continued to live and have sustenance in the midst of this famine. And Elijah lived with them. But there was a day when this woman's son, her only son, breathed his last. And all the miraculous that Elijah had performed evaporated real quickly in her mind, and she says, it's your fault, Elijah, that he has died. And Elijah sees her, and Elijah feels compassion for her. And he takes her son to his upper lodging place, lays him on his bed, and three times, it's interesting how often throughout the biblical story, three is associated with resurrection. He lays his body across the boy's body, and he is revived. And what does Elijah do? He takes him down. And the same language in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used of uh, this woman that's used of the woman in Luke's story. And he gave her her son, completely restored. Now, this is going to be a little teachy, but hang with me. Think with me about resurrection. Uh, this is one of three resurrections in the gospel account. Luke records another. It's Jairus' daughter who's 12 years old and is a, dies tragically. And Jesus comes and says, get up, little girl. And she comes back to life. John, in his gospel, a pretty famous story, stands at Lazarus' tomb, and he begins to weep. Uh, and he says, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes out in a resurrection that is hard for the religious leaders to press that story, push that story back into the bottle. Uh, those three resurrections, and there are probably more, but only three are recorded in the New Testament gospels, is foreshadowing and previewing the resurrection that we'll have with Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ was dead, and on the third day he rose again. And here is the hope of the resurrection that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 15. It says this, 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is previewed in this story is the central event and validating point of Christianity. You pull that out and we don't have a gospel. It's the core of the gospel. It's historical proof that we can bank on. And he's writing to people who have lost their loved ones like some of us. And he says this in verse 16. He says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. There is an inextricable link link between the resurrection of Jesus and our future hope. For those that have passed on who are in Christ, they will experience resurrection and the sting of death will be one day be taken away. Now, maybe you know I moved here from Birmingham and Birmingham has some, be- some really ugly scars in the civil rights era. Uh, there's a church that I passed every day from my office to campus Uh, called 16th Street Baptist Church. And in 1963, as the civil rights era is bustling and lots is happening in the South and Birmingham in particular, uh, white supremacist KKK members planted a bomb in the 16th Street Baptist Church bathroom that four little elementary age girls entered talking about their Sunday school lesson and then the bomb went off and took their lives. Can you imagine such hatred and bigotry? Can can you imagine being those parents who'd had their precious daughters taken so unjustly? Martin Luther King, we celebrate his life tomorrow said this in their eulogy, and it offers hope for us too. I hope you can find some consolation from Christianity's affirmation that death is not the end. Death is not a period that ends the sentence of life, but a comma that punctuates it to more lofty significance. Death is not a blind alley that leads us into a state of nothingness, but an open door which leads man into eternal life. That is our hope for those of us who've lost someone dear, whom God hasn't seemingly done a resurrection. He will one day do a resurrection. It is as sure as his resurrection for us too. But there's even more good news in this story. You and I who are living, who are not, have not entered the experience of death, we are resurrected even now. Uh, in this story, what stands out so ironic in the first story with the centurion, he has great faith and Jesus goes crazy. This woman has none. It's not predicated on her faith. It's predicated on Jesus' power and the gift of faith that he imparts to her as he works a resurrection uh, in her son's life. He also works a resurrection in our lives. Uh, Listen to Ephesians 2 about the reality of those who live in Christ and the hope of the resurrection for us, how real it is for us. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him. Past tense, it's already been accomplished for you. By grace, you have been saved. And this is the reality about you, though you live here now. Uh, so that, in, uh, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Your and mine, believer in Christ, your resurrection is so secured, it's as if it has already happened. You are 
one with him, seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. So the consequences for us now is that we can experience restoration and renewal in the hardness of our lives, but we can have confidence that one day there will be a resurrection that we will physically experience that will be fully complete and will share in the incomparable riches of God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. That's what Jesus does. He works a resurrection. But I want to go back to your tears. Can you see Jesus seeing you Can you enter into Jesus' depth of gut-wrenching compassion for you? And as he stoops with kindness and tears in his eyes, can, can you lift the eyes of your heart to see him? Look what the, this original audience experienced of him in verse 16. Fear sees them all. They're doing the math. No human does this. This is a man of God. Fear sees them, and they glorified God, saying, they're beginning to connect the dots. A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. They're connecting the dots, the Old, story, the Old Testament story of Elijah. A greater than Elijah has come, and they're acknowledging the power of that, that there is a prophet who doesn't just bring truth. There is a prophet who brings great power that can conquer death. And then when they say God has visited, it's a little more obscure. Uh, This is a term that Luke has picked from the words of Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, father in Luke 1, that says a Davidic king will come and visit his people. And we know he's visiting us because he's bringing supernatural resurrection power over death. He is a prophet, according to the Old Testament expectation. He is a king, just as the Old Testament portrayed as well our desperate need for and how God mediated his presence on earth. But earlier we see the other reality that warms our hearts. Not only is he the great prophet, not only he is a God and king who visits us. Look in again at verse 12. Behold a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. You know where he's lifting that language from? Genesis 22. God had long promised Abraham a son, and it took forever for God to deliver. But once God did, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, would you take your son your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him on the mountains of Moriah. Abraham packs up with his servants to take his son, his only son, whom he loved, to offer him as a sacrifice as God had required. They make it two days in the journey. He sees the mountains in the distance. And he tells his servants to stay aside and takes his son, his only son, whom he loved, further up the mountain. He strapped the wood on his back. He carried a fiery torch along the way. And his son, his only son, whom he loved, asked, Father, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb? To which Abraham said to his son, his only son, whom he loved, The Lord will provide a lamb 
And as he strapped his son onto the altar, God halted his arm that would slay his son. And he provides not a lamb, but a ram as a sacrifice in Isaac's place. But you know what God said to Abraham? Because you have not, because you have been willing to sacrifice your son, your only son whom I love, I will provide a lamb. Jesus is the son, the only son of his father, who became the lamb that was sacrificed for us. See, not only do we see in the story little traces, they're just scratching the surface. Our understanding is only scratching the surface of Jesus, who is a prophet, a king, and a son who became the sacrificial lamb as the priest to assure us that we are secured in his compassion and his resurrection power. Let's pray. Father, you gave your son, your only son for us. Uh, you did what you in the end did not require of Abraham. It had to be gut-wrenching for you to give your son, your only son, whom you love as the sacrificial lamb for us. As we enter into the feeling of that, would you deeply persuade our hearts and our minds of your compassion that you, that you, O Father, did this with your son so that we might be welcomed in as sons and daughters of our great prophet, priest, and king. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.